Welcome to the Arena Decklist Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson. Here with me, as always, is Brian Gottlieb, and we have some exciting news. Grand Finals happened, and Standard is saved. Which one do you want to tackle first? I don't know. They're, they're both very exciting occurrences. Let's go Grand Finals first, because as usual, with all things in my life, I'm more excited about things that happen to other people than things that happen to myself. So I'd rather talk about that first. That's a good place to be. Yeah, I mean... Basically, the, the tournament happened. It was it was kind of a mess. There were a lot of Omnath decks in both formats, and the the ban hammer came down swiftly after that. But definitely wanted to give a shout out to Emma Handy and Honor Burchett for making top eight, especially since we talked about their rule deck a lot and sung its praises. And it is it it's nice when not only do you go through the act of preparation and come up with something good, but then you also get rewarded for it. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of disappointment involved when, I don't know, you you do that sort of thing. You submit a deck list you think is great, and then things don't really go your way. And I, I think you could argue that things did not go their way in the top eight, but it was still just like a very nice moment. And one of the things, one of the many things, that made me regret that we're not doing this in real life because their hug before Autumn's top eight in the Mono Blue Pro Tour was one of like the PT's most iconic moments, I think. Right. And yeah. e-hugs, I, mean, I guess. Tr- it's still translated though. I mean, it, it, there was just as much emotion in this when when Emma realized she had won and activated the Ugin and her face just goes True. huge. And like that will... My wife was watching with me and was just like overjoyed by the moment. It was it was such a good encapsulation of just so much effort and so much hard work and then just getting paid on it all in that one singular moment. Emma's match against Ken was sick too. Yes, it was. Yep. I don't know. Just, you know, from I, I watched the tournament like here and there, but that was definitely one of the matches that I was like super tuned into and pretty sure that Emma just like played perfect or or at least very close to it and just like slowly cut off Ken's outs. And it was just very, very awesome to watch. I will tell you that I've watched a lot of magic in my life, just commentating and also just going around and watching random matches of magic. In general, if I'm at a magic tournament, I just kind of hang back and watch and observe. And We're I, real I like, birds. Yeah, I like doing that. I like, I like learning. I like, you know, evaluating players. And basically from the first times I saw Emma play, I was like, oh, this is just someone who hasn't gotten her break yet. It, it was very clear that she was an elite magic player and it just hadn't lined up yet. And I am completely unsurprised to see things start to line up for her. And I'm sure they will continue to line up in the future. Yeah. First of many, I hope in Autumn's case, this is, you know, many in the string of many more, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And yeah, overall, you know, very, very happy for two of my friends and they, they did an excellent job, and I'm sorry that things did not go their way in top eight or anything, but you know there's there's going to be way more tournaments. Yeah, still a ton to be proud of, obviously. Anyway, Banhammer. Oh, God, I suppose I should pull this up because a lot of stuff happened. It's it, it's already buried. One of, one of the things that is at the top, though, is uh, how Magic Online is currently featuring Emma's cube. So I guess that's like another cool thing to be proud of. Everything coming up, Emma. Anyway, Standard. Omnath, Locus of Creation is banned, Lucky Clover is banned, Escape to the Wilds is banned, Historic, with their made-up words, Omnath is suspended, Teferi Time Reveler is banned, Wilderness Reclamation is banned, and I, I kid you not, 
I woke up, I read this announcement. I was like, I thought those cards were already banned. No, they're suspended. There's surprise. Here's, here's the most important question though. Do, do we get more wild cards when Omnath eventually gets banned in historic? I would assume so, but maybe not. I don't know the answer to that. I, I don't know. Whatever. Pretty and sweet. Then, get paid twice on those wild cards. And then Burning Tree Emissary is unsuspended, which is, eh, it's it's kind of cool. I don't know. And then uh, Brawl Omnath is banned. And I, I didn't even know that people played Brawl. I, I guess I do vaguely remember that they did it so it was not just a Wednesday only thing anymore. So yeah, Oh, that, they, they that did tracks. change that? I vaguely remember that happening, so I'm pretty sure they did. But like, we we stopped our brawl for all series, and I stopped paying attention. Yes, nobody cared about that, unfortunately. Uh, right. So we quickly abandoned ship. No, hundreds, uh, hundreds of people watched the videos. Hundreds. That's true. Like two hundred people. Many anyway, hundreds. no, it was more than that. There were a few thousand people who watched them, but not not enough to keep us going. Past the first two hundred, it was all bots, man. You know. Probably true. We probably paid for bots. Anyway, historic, historic, not not going to cover that this week, I don't think. But standard, man, this looks good. This is pretty close to what you advocated for a while ago. Mm-hmm. And we can criticize that this is kind of what we were hoping would happen the first go around. And it stinks that we kind of had to go through this, but we're here now. Things are good. Reviews have been good. I've been watching some magic. Looks good to me. And everyone seems to be happy. So I'm not too mad about it. I am with you. I just don't have the energy to be mad. Like, is something very out of whack? Is this a good thing? No, it, it, it's it's not how you want magic to go. But like, at some point, you just have to be like, this is the game as we find it at this moment. May change in the future. It may not. And if this is just becoming too much for you if you can't keep up with the pace of bands and you feel like your investment is you know being shortchanged um, you have to start considering the possibility that magic just is not going to be for you for the foreseeable future i i think that's a fair place to come out on all of this you just don't want to put up with this anymore i get it i don't fault you for that but as long as we're here and we're doing this i i just can't get upset about things like this happening on a weekly basis, and I just <laughs> want to focus on the fact that magic feels good. In this moment, it feels really good, and it hasn't felt like that in a very long time. And the removal of the outsized engines from the game is the number one most important thing to my enjoyment of the game again. I don't know if it tracks for everyone else, but I know for me, these things need to be tempered down, and we're starting to go in that direction. Do I think we're there all the way? No, I don't. I I probably played more games that I would define as traditional games of magic over the past, I don't know, three days than I have in the past six months prior to that. Like just a lot of good creature combat and trading resources and occasionally having to get in top deck wars, which is not something that has happened in a very, very long time. Now, granted, I think some of this is fictional. And made up because we're all just playing by our own rules for a little while before things really get figured out. I don't know, man. Like when Zendikar Rising came out, Omneth was basically figured out within a couple days. And that deck wasn't exactly straightforward to build. And people still got like pretty close to an optimized version 
almost right away. And it's been a few days already. And we do have a best deck, but it doesn't look like there's anything people have found or tuned or whatever where they suddenly think that like, oh, this is going to be a problem. Like I haven't heard that from anyone at all. Well, one of the things about building around broken magic cards is that it's very easy. You can do a lot of things wrong and still realize, okay, this is something because this card carries so much weight. So put Uro and Omnath in a deck, it really doesn't matter what the other 53 cards, 54 cards surrounding that are. You're you're going to be fine. Things will come together for you. And I think that was a lot of the early stages of Omnath. And then as time went on, things got more and more refined. And here, I, I just don't think there is a power outlier like that left in the format. There's very good stuff left in the format, and there's some engines left in the format, but nothing that resembles free draw card, gain 16 life, <laughs> it's, you know, whatever it's all, nonsense Omnath did. It's always that, isn't it? It's always the free cards and the extra gaining life and drawing cards. It's weird how it always seems to be that. That's the problem. It does historically seem to be the case, yes. Anyway, I was mostly coming at it from an angle of people not really hyping up Omnath during preview season, but like maybe maybe it just went unspoken, I suppose, where everyone kind of like knew it was busted to the point where it's like there's no use talking about how good this card is or whatever, but that wasn't really the the vibe I got, you know? Maybe, no, I, maybe- I agree with your assessment. I, I think that's fair. I felt slept on, but there were so many weird things about the preview season that it's you know there's no magic True. to be played and a lot of formats were in complete shambles at that point in time so it's it's really hard to and it was take fast. any of this uh yeah it, it's just such a strange time in magic it's really hard to unpack exactly what was going on well i i played some have been watching a lot more watching like a decent variety of people streaming standard on arena you know, just trying to get outside of my bubble and what I think and see what others are thinking and doing. And that's mostly where my experiences come from. And people have basically just had rave reviews so far, which has been nice, you know, because I mean, especially like Magic Twitter, right? It's normally just a lot of negativity and complaining. And I'm, I'm not saying that it shouldn't be, you know, like there are definitely a lot of times where I feel that way too. But this, this has kind of seemed different. And I know that people have talked about like band season like this before, but the most recent person I heard say this was uh, Gab Nassif, who said that like by banning these three cards, they unbanned the rest of the format. And that's kind of what it feels like. I completely agree. I I think they chose exactly the cards they needed to. I think if you leave out any one of these, you have a disaster on your hands. Could you have gone further? Sure. I had... Six cards on my list. The ones that survived were uh, now Winota, Embercleave, and what's my last one? Lotus Cobra. And I think that's fine. I, I no longer feel like any of those cards are going to be problematic, mostly because I think you've taken away most of the good payoffs from them. I also think my initial list of six was designed to be an overshot. Like I didn't want to have to come back and do a right. second round of bans. I wanted to get everything out of the way. So I was 100% going hard and not leaving anything to chance. But once you've thrown that out the window, I, I then I guess like being a little bit more pointed. The big response I saw was people questioning Escape to the Wilds. I am 100% on board with that decision. There is still so many broken things you can do, usually in conjunction with Lotus Cobra, if you keep Escape to the Wilds. So right. correct and, decision there, needed to you, go. 
that's that's the bridge between like Cobra and Genesis Ultimatum too. That that's what gives yeah. you the amount of resources to actually get there, especially in post board games, and it does a ton of work in mitigating any sort of like means of interaction your opponent could have for you. You know, like are they are they trying to constrict your resources or like counter your spells or whatever? Are are you having like you know promising land drops? It just it fixes all of your problems, and I definitely feel you know trying to build these decks that like there's this big gaping hole, and yes. that's a, that's an actively good thing. Yes, yes, you should not be able to do what Escape to the Wilds enabled a lot of these decks to do, and you basically all the degenerate setups in the format, at least the ones that I have worked on and have found involve you putting a lot of resources onto the battlefield. And then you're trying to like cobble something together with the little bit you have left. So you've put a uh, Dried of the Elysian Grove on the battlefield and you've put a Lotus Cobra on the battlefield and you've put Song of Creation onto the battlefield. <laughs> and those things have all assembled. Well, what's left in your hand? Nothing. You have nothing left at that point. If you're going to go through all the hurdles to get these really bizarre engines compiled together, you've invested a lot. And then if you just have Escape to the Wilds, you're 100% back in the game at that point. You have done what you needed to do, and you have a brand new hand of gas ready to go with extra mana on your next turn or extra mana immediately because you do have something like Lotus Cobra. So right. every degenerate thing I ever put together, be it Song of Creation Mill, where you milled out your opponent from 45 cards in a single turn, or the Nahiri's Lithoforming decks where you just dome them for 60 and draw your entire deck on turn five. All of that stuff does not work without Escape to the Wilds. It's an important part to have gone. Right. And then even as far as any sort of mid-range deck is concerned, I mean, like towards the end of that format, we were kind of just like bouncing around food ideas and stuff like that just because, you know, it yeah. wasn't like, oh, this can beat Omnath, but it was like, oh, here's like another deck for us to work on. And Escape to the Wilds was also quite good there. And there are all these, you know, new adventures decks that, would be happy to even like splash for that card. So I, I think that that was the overshoot to some degree, but it was very, very necessary. And I feel really bad for people like, you know, you and Michael Jacob, like people who actually like, you know, posted that publicly where it's like, Hey, this, this card's a problem. And then like people just yelled at them or laughed at them. And it's like, what? Like, are you not, are you not playing the same games as me where it's like, oh, this is fine. I can contain them. They resolve escape. And it's like, what the hell am I supposed to do? Yeah, the two cards that people really bristled about were Escape to the Wilds and Lucky Clover. Out of those six, those are the ones that they were, why would you ever ban those cards? And to me, they were the, besides Omnath, obviously, and Uro, they were the staunchest case for banning. They were just absurd. The type of games they force you to play could only do a very specific thing. They would have centered the format squarely around engines and there would have been no chance of ever having resource light games in the format with those two cards existing so very happy that they have hit the bench yeah th these these amount of bands were good i'm i'm sad that it it took this long but eh, no, no big deal like this is another interesting point in magic's history and it's it's cool to be a part of it i'm glad it's over but yeah we can just start talking about what standard actually looks like I like that. I like focusing on the reality of the situation rather than the past. And like I said, if if you're struggling with all this, I don't want to demean those concerns. You you get to be upset about this. I think that's fair as a consumer to not be thrilled about the state of bands, but uh, that just doesn't do anything for me at this moment. I need my game back. I need magic back. I need somewhere that I'm happy to go and somewhere that I'm happy to explore. And right now I have that and that's all I care about.
Yeah. I mean, as always, it, it sucks, you know, and it's never going to not suck, especially when in this case, it was like a, a fairly wide swath of bands. They're all like kind of contained to the same sort of archetype or whatever. But hopefully now, as Nasif recently pointed out, this means that the rest of your collection is unbanned. And hopefully that feels good. Also, who has a collection right now? Like, I, I haven't bought any of these cards yet. This is I, the first time I don't have complaint equity because I don't own any Euros. I don't own any Omnaths. I just haven't bought them because I haven't needed them. So I, I have an arena collection and that matters, you know? Yeah. I, I get so, your wild cards back. We know the problem with that. I don't, we don't need to go into it, but yeah, man, I mean, I'm it's, like, it's I, a little less, a little less painful. Uh, a little less. Like I had certainly built a lot of different Omnath decks and crafted cards and, you know, crafted things to try and build things that beat Omnath and blah, blah, blah. Right. Like I was, I was low on wild cards when this set came out. So I spent $200, you know, and yeah, it, it, it just sucks obviously. So I'm, I'm in the same boat as a lot of other people, but anyway, uh, I am happy that the rest of my cards are unlocked. So that is cool. Yay. The way I tend to try and frame new formats is by looking at the pillars. And I think the initial reaction that people get when they hear of pillars is just like a top five or a top 10 list of like best cards in the format. But I don't think that as far as learning something that it is great to just look at what are the best cards, because even, you know, in like the top three decks might have 10 of the best cards or something. Right. So you're not actually getting a picture of the format. So the way that I do it is, Basically, if you are playing a deck in this format and your card or your deck does not have any of these cards that I deem to be the pillars, you need a very good reason. Yeah, I like the way you do this. Uh, this is not a hundred percent what my process looks like, but it it comes to the same point. I do, I do a lot more just like feeling random things and then using that to push me to what I like to say is like a thesis about the format, but my thesis encapsulates a lot of these pillars by virtue of like, if your pillars are what games are about, then obviously the thesis that it's supposed to explain the entire format is going to always point to those pillars. And my thesis now is that engines are blunted. They're not what they once were, but they're kind of still what we're doing here and what we're best served by doing. And the difference is that now engines, since they're not just absurdly powerful and you're not always getting paid with an immediate card return or they only cost two mana, like in the case of Lucky Clover, now you can actually start to interact with those engines. And that means a lot of my pillars are broken down to engine cards, responses to engine cards, how we're disrupting these engine cards. And I think it brought me to basically the exact same place you got to. Yeah, I like simplifying things. So... Again, if if your standard deck does not have one of these five cards, you need to think long and hard about why that is. And there are some outliers too that I'll get to at the end where it's just like, you know, these these are things that could be successful that don't necessarily contain any of these cards. And, you know, they have their own little engine piece or thing that could maybe be a pillar if it's like, you know, one of the, ends up being the best deck or one of the best decks. So uh, my five cards are actually one card in every color which doesn't always happen. This is one of the rare instances where it is. And some of the ones end up being like a multicolored card or it's like, you know, four cards of a color and then either nothing or an artifact or something. 
And, you know, usually White's getting the, the short end of the stick on that. But uh, oh. my my five pillars are the Great Henge, Heartless Act, Embercleave, Shark Typhoon, Skyclave Apparition. And then, like I said, there are some outliers. But for the most part, uh, when you're trying to talk to me about, like, what is one of the better decks in the format or something that has a shot, it almost certainly has one of these five cards. That has Born out, in my experience. It's very challenging to build anything that doesn't encapsulate these ideas. And a lot of it is just about what these cards do. Specifically with the first card you mentioned, the Great Henge. To me, that's been the standout card of the format this far. I don't know if you have like a preference list for these, but to me, it has been the card that seems like it's most ready to shape the format and does the most 2019, 2020 things when it's in play. You just right. go off. You you draw your entire deck. You put you know, 20 power with creatures on the battlefield, your mana accelerates. It feels like Omnath explosions, but in a much more reasonable, acceptable fashion. Right. And they're, they're basically stack stack ranked in order of importance because in order to frame the format, I definitely want to talk about like the thing that I found to be like the most powerful first and then second, third, fourth, whatever, so on. So awesome. I, I agree with you. I think the Great Henge is basically the best thing to be doing right now. And there are some versions of some of these decks that don't have the Great Henge that I think should, even if it's not in the main deck, like maybe it should be part of your sideboard plan. And obviously that's just like any green creature-based deck. I mean, you have Lovestruck Beast and Kazandu Mammoth, both which enable Henge on turn four for sort of a, a nut draw. But also there's just, you know things that have very high power for very low cost. And like, even if you're not curving like turn three, turn four, it just means that the hinge is going to be like pretty cheap in the late game. And you have so many of these things. It's not like before, like, Oh, I need to actually get my love struck beast to make my hinge be a reasonable mana cost. It's like, no, you actually have like a lot of redundancy to the point where now instead of playing like one or two hinges, I, I think we just play three and just be pretty happy with that and have it be pretty consistent. Yeah, we were bouncing back and forth our uh, Golgari Adventures lists prior to this cast. And without collaborating, we came to very, very similar ideas, both containing three copies of the Great Henge. There's no way I would be interested in playing this deck without the Great Henge present. It seems just like the way you do powerful stuff. And it has a little bit of that. One of the things that has been a big hallmark of recent good standard decks is that the engines are multitudinous. With something like Omnath Adventures, you could do the Adventures game with Innkeeper. You could do the Lucky Clover game, or you could just go off with Omnath and any one was acceptable. In the case of Golgari Adventures, as opposed to using Lucky Clover as your secondary engine, you now are going up to the Great Henge. And it's explosive, it's powerful, and you just have a nice clock. And when you're in a format where people are still trying to understand the boundaries, the limitations, what exactly decks are capable of, it's real good to just put some damage on the battlefield and be like, can you beat turn three Lovestruck Beast? If this gets to attack you four times, is that just going to do you in? And a lot of decks are folding to that right now. Yeah, I mean, it's it's tough. Like, you, you have the pressure, you have the engines, and the engines are also usually very cheap. Innkeeper can be interacted with. Basically, all the decks are playing removal now. Like, that is a major thing that has happened where... Not only are there not like a plethora of combos, it just means that there's a lot of creatures and a lot of combat and that forces people to play removal spells. So like Innkeeper might just die every single time you play it. But 
That means that your opponent's game plan is getting slowed down. They have less removal for your three drop big creature. And then that enables Great Henge. And, you know, Great Henge just works well with Innkeeper, making it so that you have something to play on your Great Henge turn. And you have enough gas to like keep drawing adventure creatures and they both kind of fuel each other. And then you're also just like building this bigger battlefield and pushing the game forward. And that's just your primary game plan. Sounds like a snowball to me. And you yep. know how important snowballing is in modern magic. Uh, that's not, it's not gone, but it is mitigatable. You know, you talk about a card like the Great Henge as opposed to a card like Omnath, you can kill creatures that would otherwise allow Great Henge to enter the battlefield at a reduced cost. It's it's tough to kill every Lovestruck Beast and Kazandu Mammoth, because like you said, there's a lot of them, but you can do it. I mean, I, I've done it. I've done it successfully. You can also interact with the Great Henge as it's being cast, or excuse me, as, it, as it's entering the battlefield and a creature is being cast. So before it gets any value short of a couple mana and a couple life, you can go ahead and fire off an enchantment or excuse me, an artifact removal spell. That's not something that felt good against Lucky Clover. Like there, there was no benefit to wilting a Lucky Clover a lot of times because they got immediate payoff and you only traded up mana parity. When your opponent has invested a bunch of setup into this great henge, well, wilt starts to look promising again. And even things like gem razor, I don't think we're like at the same place we were going into the grand finals where gem razor is a main deckable card, but Having answers to various engine cards such as the Great Henge is going to be a very big part of this format. And I think it informs a lot of choices for non-green decks as well. For instance, there's some removal that's more diverse than others that can hit stuff like this. And I think it's important to consider that when you're putting together your removal suite. Yeah, definitely agree with all of that. Uh, the, The main difference to me is that these things can be interacted with. And you... so. Our, both of our lists have four innkeepers and three great henches. There's, you know, like temples to help you find your stuff. And there's things like Order of Midnight to maybe buy back your innkeeper and Agadim's Awakening, stuff like that. So you have more redundancy built into your like two piece redundant engine combo. But there's still a risk of like you not drawing it or them just being able to remove everything on site. And the great henge is legendary. Like that definitely comes up a lot. And yeah. If, if you draw two henges and they kill your only five power thing, it's like you're you're in a bad spot. Whereas the Omnath deck, again, you know, like Omnath, killing it does not feel good. You're likely not getting a great bargain there. And then Escape to the Wilds, there's just really no interacting with it outside of just negating it or whatever. And it's, it's different with this deck. It is containable. It is beatable. You can run it over. You can go over the top of it. And it it's, for a best deck, it's just super fair. You know, and it is it is very much what I think is the best deck right now. I don't know if I feel that as strongly as you do. I think it's certainly among the best decks. It's not close. (laughs) That is a bold (laughs) statement this early on, but we'll see where that goes. It it is one of the best things to be doing by virtue of its proactivity and the fact that it just has a bunch of engines built into it. So really like the look of Golgari Adventures. Where do you fall on mono green aggro? You and I are not the biggest supporters of this archetype, but people continue to crush with it. And I, no, I, think I can't deny that at this point. I keep, I keep trying it. Uh, a lot of people have been very successful with it. Cedric is, was number five on the ladder as of yesterday with it. And I mean, he's, he's basically been, that's been his deck for like the last six months or whatever. 
And I, I'm sure that there were times where it was like still not as good and he was playing it and probably winning with it anyway. And like, that's another one of those decks where I was like, well, maybe this has a chance against Omnath and, you know, I crafted a bunch of swarm shamblers or whatever. And I want my virtual money back, but got him. Yep. Hooked me good. So it's solid. The way I basically look at it is that you have, you have a decent aggro plan. And there are some versions that play things like Wildwood Tracker to have like an additional one drop and a little bit more aggression. And I think that those plans are fine, but ultimately you win so many games on the back of the Great Henge where I would just want to be, you know, a little less beatdown slanted and a little more engine slanted. And that just makes me think that Golgari Adventures is roughly the same deck, but a little bit stronger, especially since... You have access to a lot of very good removal spells. You have the secondary engine piece. I mean, you, there, there are some downsides, right? Like your, your man is not the best. And Mono Green gets things like Bonder's Enclave, which is not exciting, but still solid, you know? And you just can't afford to play a colorless land in, in a deck like this when you're trying to play a bunch of like single green stuff and murderous riders. So Golgari Adventure is definitely not without fault, but I do think that it's, almost strictly better than mono green you can make a good case for the aggression and the consistency of mono green when it's like there's no possible way you could ever engage in a long game and i think that was a fair statement prior to the most recent bans you're not going long against omnath that's just not ever going to happen they'll draw their deck so you get aggressive or you lose now if you can be both one of the best beatdown decks and the best engine deck that's a really sweet space to occupy and you get to play like spot removal and duress out of the sideboard and all of these things that just overall help your game plan. And in a situation that we're in now where it's not necessarily like, oh, I, I didn't expect to play against this type of deck. Like the decks are all fairly known, but like you you can't really control what people are trying out or what you expect. Like there, there basically is no metagame right now. So like having these versatile answers that Golgari has access to is like another strike in its favor but it's also one of those things where it's like if people are messing around like this is a fine deck to just beat up on nonsense too so it's possible that if the format actually you know does solidify or i guess when it solidifies then maybe that'll be less true you know yeah uh next next up heartless act not not like a great pillar because it's just like generic removal spell and it's replaceable by a lot of things but it is very important, and it's it's basically the reason to be black in a lot of these decks in a lot of these cases because it is so efficient. And obviously, there are things that are good against it, like scavenging use, stone cold serpent, etc. Like you're occasionally going to run into problems when you have that card. It's not like jam four of it; it kills everything. But it is kind of the bridge between all of these black mid range decks. Yeah, I could see actually classifying this pillar as Heartless Act slash Blood Chief's Thirst. And maybe that expresses a little bit more of what we're actually trying to get at is there's there's good removal decks now. It makes sense to be the deck loaded with removal. And for me, I never go too hard into like just Heartless Act or just Blood Chief's Thirst. I think you're supposed to play a mix and usually end up in a very good spot if you do so. And I usually have like a Hagra Mauling in my deck as well. Uh, not 
going hard on that card. I think the tapped land does matter, but you can usually find space for one and hedge a little bit. So it's it's this entire suite of black removal, which is strong in the format right now. There are threats that get punished by just being answered one for one. Uh, if you are able to bake in some card advantage into your deck, you don't mind going one for one removal because you're not just going to get completely blown up by an escape to the wilds. Uh, so things like Croxa, denying you resources and then just picking off every creature you play, that's real. You can do that now. And you could try and do that before. And you know, some people did so pretty successfully. Certainly some tournaments were won by Rakdos midrange, but there was a pretty clear flaw uh, going into this weekend's grand finals. And Rakdos midrange didn't do too much in the space. It just was outclassed by Omnath with that deck off its back. It's doing some really impressive stuff now. Yeah, and uh, Demir Rogues is the other one too, where uh, obviously had a, a pedigree going into the grand finals, and people have done a lot of work on that list. And I think the one I like now is definitely like Luris into the story based. I'm not sure yes. if I actually like the Ruin Crabs or not, though. I I waffle. Uh, if they're against me, then they're incredible. If I'm playing them, they're completely unplayable. So. That's generally my impression of Ruin Crab. Also, <laughs> you know why that is, right? Why is that? Because you're playing mid-range nonsense, which Crab is good against, and then you're playing on ladder against random people who are like, I like mono red. Yeah, probably true. Probably true. I like not um, not even mono red, even just like, you know, Rakdos and even Golgari Adventures are fairly aggro leaning. Yeah, things that punish you for just having an absolute blank in your deck. I, I do like the way the rogue decks have adjusted. The Zareth Sand stuff was just never going to work out. That deck didn't impress me from day one. But as I, it got I don't know lean, about that. I don't I, know about that. I just don't. Never? Buy. Well, with, maybe with, they could, they could with, have a moment. They could have a moment. But I don't think they can be a pillar. Yeah. With, I mean, with Omnath in the set, it's tough, right? It's like yeah. t- tough to look at it like that. But I, I look at the format as it is now, and it's like, eh, Ink Eyes doesn't seem that bad. But like you said, I mean, these these new setups look a lot more appealing. Instead of trying to Ink Eyes people, I could just have a bunch of one mana spells and into the story. Like, I'm I'm super in for that. Right. You have diverse game plans in that scenario. It's not just, here's my thing, I hope it's good enough, or I hope you were foolish enough to tap out or build your deck with no removal, because the punishes were so hard. And I, I think they remain pretty hard. I'm not looking to go back to that sand. I think we've just found a better version of rogues at this point. It's something I was doing a lot prior to bands. I was doing Vantress Gargoyle stuff, and I, I think that's the way to go. Uh, the card has continued to impress me and lines up pretty well against a bunch of the other stuff going on in the format. So I'm inclined to keep doing rogues that way as far as Ruin Crab. Do you know this is the most hated magic card in existence right now? Like, I think... There's a very good case that more people wanted to see Ruin Crab banned than either Lucky Clover or Escape to the Wilds. Oh yeah, I would believe that. And it's not because, you know, cards OP or whatever. It was it was just I hate I hate playing against this. The the thing that people haven't figured out yet, and I'm gonna talk about this in a little bit in my article this week, is that did you know that you can just side in cards? Make your deck a little bigger? Not a bad idea. And you like it kind of goes against traditional magic theory, right? Because it's like you're not you're not presenting the optimal deck. But like, you know, what if what if you're mid-range, right? And your your optimal curve or whatever doesn't necessarily pressure them. You know, no matter what, the game is going to turn 10. And 
especially with the DFCs and people having higher land counts in general, like, I'll, you know, Golgari Adventures, for example. I have, I think, 13, I have 21 lands, and I have three Agadim's Awakening, four Mammoth, and right now I have two Hagramalling. That's a lot of pseudo lands. If yeah. I just, like, side in eight cards and take two out, I'm, I'm you know, a, a turn of Ruin Crab activations ahead of my opponent, and I'm mostly committing to just, like, playing my Mammoth's land, so, like, I'm probably going to have to do that every game, but... You know, now you're getting that extra turn that maybe you need. And I am constructing my sideboarding strategy with that in mind. And like the amount of DFCs I play with that in mind. Yep. Right. And that is a thing that you can do. Yeah, I love it. I, I think you have to recognize when you just don't have the means to play a traditional game against this style of deck and use all the options available to you and have a plan going into the matchup. And I think if you are cognizant of this in deck building, it seems very plausible that you can find yourself in a fine position after adding just eight eight cards to your deck and presenting 68 well i was i was still cutting two so i, I right now i'm still at like 66 but okay you know if, if i wanted to like if, if i found that like crab or like getting milled was was really the problem then maybe my sideboard plan would have like a couple more threats and i would play an extra dfc or something and then it's like okay well maybe maybe 68 is the right number you know this has not been rigorously tested or whatever like i've I've done it way more than once and it has been good. It's just, it's not like, oh, I, I narrowly squeaked him out or whatever, but it's definitely been like, well, they can't, they can't go on this mill plan because they know that they're not going to get there. So they have to take like a different avenue. Right. And then, then I've just never felt under pressure. But you know, obviously for something like Mono Red, it's like, who cares? Present 60, like smash them. The crab doesn't matter against you, right? So it's not a thing that you can do with every single archetype, but like if you are super weak to the crab, there's some a little outside of the box ways that you can get around it. Love it. And I, I also think like the format as a whole has done a very good job contemplating crab problems. Chainweb Arachnir is one card that's just in every green deck now. You see it always. Obviously, the entire Rakdos midrange deck is extremely happy to see a ruined crab on the other side of the table they'll let you load up their graveyard all day and then just random escape cards are coming back to you there's more cling to dust i played pelucranos to pretty good success this week so there's lots of avenues to explore and ways to get good creatures back in the mix even wolstrider is a card that like i was more inclined to put in some of my decks because i knew i would get paid on it against crabs yeah, Skyclave Shade, Phoenix of Ash. Uh, yeah. Canister had an Ox of Agonis in his Omnath sideboard, which was brilliant because, you know, they're they're milling you a little bit and also disrupting you. And then you just have like this draw three for free. And I'm very sad that the format, you know, things changed before I got a chance to actually do that. But yeah, if you're milling people, they're, they're going to have an escape card, almost certainly. Uh, so you need to be prepared for that. And it's funny because... You know, that is a way to get around Zareth's sand is just escaping away like all your good targets. So yeah. that's certainly a, a strike against that card. Absolutely. Yeah, I, th I think so. That came up a lot for me. And then I think there's way more clings available at this point. Any black deck usually has access to cling. Not as many lanterns as I would expect. Soul Guide lanterns. Love uh, that card. Maybe. Yeah, I do too. And I wish I saw more Loris decks trying to take advantage of it. But that hasn't come up all that much for me. Maybe that's still a couple weeks away, or you need to see some results from crabs before you start going down that road. If you're concerned about your Rakdos matchup, they go too hard for a single cling to matter. And mm -hmm. I've I've really liked Soul Guide Lantern against them. Nice. 
Uh, other Heartless Act deck is one that is probably not good, but I think bears mentioning, and that's some sort of food variant. I think there's Golgari, uh, maybe Juns. Like basically, if you want to play Claim the Firstborn in our Jun list pre-ban, we were playing Escape to the Wilds and Corvold and stuff. But I th- I think that that package of cards is it's still there and it's still very relevant. And I I think that people should not just dismiss it outright i agree i played the deck some this week it was good it it felt solid it felt like i was still putting my plans together and understanding exactly how i was supposed to line up against the format at large you know i had some games where like i think probably the first time where i was like okay all of my sideboards need to account for the great henge going forward was against uh when i was when i was playing food and i just like didn't have my wilts in the sideboard and i was just like uh we're gonna have wilts going forward like that just doesn't have to happen to us Dude, and I just had a great idea. Please tell me. Do you Absolutely. want to put the Great Henge in food? Oh, well, I do. I don't think that really works, but uh, Abzan food. What would you like to do with that? You can play the Mythos. Yeah. Which Yo Man 5 has been doing in Abzan. And I, I didn't like that Abzan deck, but Mythos did look good. And for one of the qualifiers, I registered an Emma Handy special that was admittedly like pretty bad, but it was just like food with Doom Foretold. Yeah. Okay. And I thought that that was tight. I, I don't think it was good, but I mean, if, if we're trying to get some disenchants in there, Mythos can do the job. Yeah, I like that. I don't know about food with Doom Foretold. I, I saw Majors actually posted a list the other day that was like Doom Foretold food-ish, if I'm recalling correctly. Maybe it was Felidar Retreat based. I don't know. It was like a four color nonsense thing. And it didn't seem to me to have enough ways to mitigate your own doom foretold which is sometimes fine I, I don't think you need to go super hard like you don't need to have a deck full of golden eggs but you need some way to know that you're going to benefit from playing doom foretold but maybe you could just do like hard card advantage go treacherous blessing into mythos so you're happy to do some one for one stuff doom foretold i'm buying it i i see something there there, there are ways around it i mean obviously when you had cat it was way different and right. this this is the point where the cat ban actually looks really good, by the way. Yeah. Because if cat did not get banned, I think we would have like a clear runaway vest deck, you know? So that was that was a preemptive ban. It looked kind of silly, especially in the face of Omnath. But now it's like, well, if you didn't ban cat during this round of bannings, it would have been heinous. So I'm yeah. I'm very happy that that was gone too. But I agree. Yeah, with you. That card that card helped make uh Doom Foretold. Like less of a big deal, but yeah, you can you can come up with sacrificial fodder, obviously. Kind of want to pause the podcast and work on this deck. Don't let me do that. Let's keep going. <laughs> do no, we got, Sorry, man, we got to talk about Embercleave. Okay. How much Embercleave experience do you have? More than you would expect, um, mostly because I have a lot of Winota experience. But my experience with Winota was take those Embercleaves out of your deck. They suck there. I don't think they suck everywhere. There's plenty of places to Embercleave, and I think it remains an important part of the format. Although I will say it feels like the deck that I am just kind of clowning with everything right now is Gruel. And that's not to say anything bad about the Gruel deck. You, if you listen last week, you knew, you know how high I am on that list. It was just built for a very specific metagame and people just kind of took the 75 and copy pasted it into this new metagame. And I, I don't think it quite works as well here. So people need to think carefully about their card choices in that deck because it has not impressed me thus far in this new metagame. Yeah, just, I mean, rebuild it, you know? Uh, Some of the stuff you can keep, for sure. I I think some of it is definitely worth looking at, like just 
brush fire elemental in general, I think is solid. Uh, also quite good with the great henge. Maybe the stone coil serpent gem razor stuff is not worth it. And you want to look at something else. Maybe you want to get the Rimrock Knights back in there to make your innkeepers a little bit stronger or whatever. Like there's- yeah, I've seen the Coombe Hellhound base builds, like more aggressive yeah. leaning stuff, which has impressed me a little bit more given the current metagame. So yeah, I could see that too. So uh, I, I think the Gruel Adventures is definitely very good. And outside of Mono Red Aggro, might be the best Embercleave deck. And basically for the reasons you noted where in decks like Winota or even like Knights, uh, it might not even be like the right equipment for the deck. Nope. Like against a format where people are very high on spot removal and interacting again, I mean, Embercleave is not as effective as it used to be, right? Because your your biggest thing doesn't necessarily live all the time and you don't necessarily get up to like, you know, three and four creatures to make that thing super cheap. Like if you're attacking with like a robber of the rich and you have an Embercleave, it's like, it's not super impressive. And then obviously it has the great henge problem where it's legendary too. So uh, you were playing Maul of the Skyclaves, right? And yeah, that's a card that I also like a decent amount. And it's, it's a lot better against spot removal just in general. Yeah, I think so. Uh, especially in the context of Embercleave, or excuse me, especially in the context of Winota, because Winota now is not the same deck it previously was. Like you're you're not supposed to intend to hit a KO punch. Winota's just supposed to be a good card in your deck. There's there's just not good enough hits to be able to be like, okay, I jam my Winota. I spent my first three turns doing some nonsense stuff like Selfless Hound into Woe Strider, just getting as wide as possible. And now I get to go spinning and I'm going to bury you. And then you go spin and you get like, Cargan Warlord, and there's like a Season Hollow Blade. There's just not good enough hits. You don't have those KO punches anymore. So the way most of my Winota decks play out is some kind of A plan, usually tribal, uh, like Warriors has been my best Winota deck, but you can also do like plus one, plus one counters. You can do Knights. Uh, I've messed with Party. You can do Cleric. What, whatever kind of tribal setup you want to do is your A plan. And then your B plan is kind of recursive attacks with Winota. Like you stick a Winota and then you have this thing that's Maul of the Sky claved up and that's going to get you multiple searches into your deck. And then you win two or three turns later. You don't just win in one swing. So that's been a huge reason why I've been pushed towards Maul of the Sky claves. But also it's just like the punishment is much less when you invest in Maul of the Sky claves, and you can just play your game and just being able to go two drop season hollow blade or Cargan warlord into three drop mall of the skyclaves that'll beat a bunch of people and i'm very happy having access to that game plan against a bunch of different decks yeah hollow blade specifically uh, there's there's not a whole lot that actually kills it profitably right so yeah just suiting that up i imagine is quite good yeah and discard your whole hand to it, it it'll carry you it, yeah. it's done it for me many times uh so right now what is your what is your best winota deck do you think I think it's Warriors uh, going as far as the three mana Warrior Lord. Like that's your main hit. When you, solid. Yeah. And there's there's decent Warrior support and you get enough different types. One of the big changes I made is to play the, the red one drop, which is, I don't even know its name, but when it dies, it deals damage equal to its power. No, that uh, card's good too. And I also have the core that gives all your Warriors double strike. And you combine all this stuff with Maul of Skyclaves, and I'm just like, you know, tending people out of nowhere with my Season Hollow Blade. And I think you need these weird backdoor hits now that 
change the combat math pretty dramatically when you're attacking on Winota turns. And also just function when you don't have Winota whatsoever. You go one drop, two drop, three drop, and you've put a ton of power on the battlefield and you're threatening lethal on turn four or five. That's what Winota needs to look like right now. It's not a combo deck anymore. Yeah, that makes sense. Next up is Shark Typhoon. And this to me is kind of the control or even like, you know, tap out mid-range catch-all where I don't think there's going to be a deck like that that exists without this card. And, you know, like Demir Control, Azorius Control, I think uh, Esper Dance is actually solid too. And I think this just encapsulates what those decks are trying to do. I think my best deck is a Shark Typhoon deck. Uh, It's not exactly lined up with things like Demir Control or Dance of the Mance. Mine is uh, Urian Enchantment deck. And you can you can certainly do like Doom Foretold Dance of the Man stuff in that shell. I've seen some Satessan Champion Doom Foretold decks that look very nice. I know Jeff Pike is playing one that he's really enjoying. And mine kind of looks to do some similar things, except it's just 80 cards, three Yorians in the main, a ton of omens. Combine that with Satessan Champion, and you just kind of go off and you overpower everyone. And then you have Felidar Retreat. So you're blinking Omen of the Hunt. And Felidar Retreat is putting a bunch of tokens in play. And basically, you get a bunch of one-turn KOs by setting your deck up this way. And all of that is backed up by Shark Typhoon and Sweepers, because Sweepers are not being widely played at the moment. Someone nah, needs they're to good. They're good. these creature decks honest and play some Sweepers. So I've been very happy with my Shattered the Skies. And this deck has really impressed me thus far. I think it's the best thing I've stumbled across. But there's a lot of space in the general Doom Foretold, Dance of the Mance type stuff that also leans on Shark Typhoon that I think still has to be sussed out, but lines up well against everything else going on. You can you can build an engine into these decks. That's what's so exciting about them is you don't have to play fair. And while I was very drawn to things like Rock, it's fun to play the Rock. Everyone wants to play the Rock, but these engines still exist. And if you can build your decks to take advantage of them as well, I think you should be doing so. Yeah, and for any sort of control deck or... Uh, Yurian, Dance of the Man type of thing. Like, I would definitely be looking to beat Golgari Adventures. Uh, you know, at least if what I'm saying is true, where I believe that it is the best deck and that other people are going to pick up on it being the best deck and it's going to be played and be prevalent, uh, you need your deck to just naturally go over the top of them. I don't, I don't think like normal Demir control where they're like killing with shark typhoons is really going to get the job done because they're just going to outdraw you. I agree with you. That's been my experience. Basically with any deck lacking an engine, I feel the pain of playing against adventure creatures so much. They're two cards in one. I, they just do so much. And you're asking your one for ones to keep pace with that. They can't. It's not realistic. You're asking for something that can't be done. So the way other decks are keeping up with the two-for-one value of adventure creatures is by installing their own engines. Felidar Retreat is a really good one, but you know stuff like Great Henge and Trail of Crumbs and all the stuff that goes in Golgari Adventures as well, of course. It, it is just what you have to do to keep pace right now. We're not free from engines yet. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, Luris into the story is definitely another one. That's a good one, yep. I mean, Rakdos just plays with her graveyard all day. Yeah, that's Timer that, It Calls the Dead is kind of their engine. I think yeah. that's fair. Well, and I mean, there just gets to be a certain point where like every turn you're escaping Broxa, right? And it's mm-hmm. like, that's kind of what you're doing. You just, you don't run out of gas. It's happening in a different way, but that's how they operate. 
Last up, we have Skyclave Apparition, which is sort of a weird one. You were like, well, Felidar Retreat. And it's like, well, there are, there are more decks that have Apparition than Felidar. Maybe maybe your treat is like a stronger card overall in the format. I don't necessarily think that that's true, but I think that between Apparition and Shark Typhoon, you're covering more bases than by having something like Felidar Retreat. That's fair. And I, th- I think we are talking about pretty different decks when we're talking about Felidar Retreat and Skyclave Apparition. Maybe it should be that white is actually the color that gets two paths on this, this pillar chart because they are so separate. But make your pitch on Skyclave Apparition. I do think it covers most of what I saw as white's role in the format too. Yeah, so this this one is lighter. This is like mono white, Selesnia aggro, or like counters. Uh, and then it makes more sense to put Winota under this bucket than actually under Embercleave because... You know, you're you're telling me that not all Winota decks should have Embercleave, and I that that actually tracks to me. So I, I think that most, if not all, will have Apparition or Embercleave, if not both, right? Yeah. So yeah, Apparition just seems like more of a catch-all, and it's basically just like you're you're a mid-range white creature deck, or maybe even like an aggro white creature deck, and that has a role in the format. You don't necessarily have an engine, but what you're trying to do. You know, like Mono Red and Gruel Adventures are trying to build like this wide board and then go over the top with Embercleave or like get that burst damage in with Embercleave. And I think these white base decks, for the most part, are just like flood the board, go wide and overwhelm you that way. And most of them don't have an engine, at least in the case of like Mono White Aggro or the Counters decks. But I've definitely seen a lot of like Blink shenanigans, uh, you know, some sort of like Urian deck. I don't know. There's like the Azorius Blink deck with like Barons and stuff, and they make very, very good use of that this card. And I think that that is the role that it's supposed to play in the format. Yeah, I, I am curious what you can do to turn this into an engine. It does seem like there is some potential there to make this a pretty key portion of your strategy, where it just controls everything. Uh, but I have found that casting costs are more diverse than I would have initially expected. Like I've been suffering to some five and six mana cards when I have a Skyclave Apparition in hand. It oh, doesn't yeah. come up all the time, oh, but yeah. there's, there's good stuff. Like Elder Gargaroth is a very real card. It lines up pretty well against the stuff that's going on. Great Obviously, Henge. Great Henge, yeah. So I don't think this can be your catch-all. And I was building decks, uh, specifically my first drafts of Winota decks, where this was everything. This was how I was planning to deal with anything my opponent did. And that doesn't quite track. You need to be considerate of the fact that they can get bigger than a converted mana cost of four, but still very much a focal point for any disruptive, aggressive white deck. Yeah, I mean, that's why these white decks are generally trying to end the game by like turn six is because they they don't scale well. They don't have yeah. an engine really themselves. And the answers that they have, it's like uh, Glass Casket, Skyclave Apparition, like they they are limited by casting costs. And mm-hmm. you're yeah, you're just going to struggle against any sort of like five mana plus thing uh, so you just need to get the game over with as quickly as possible or like go to the air with Maul of the Skyclave, something like that. Yeah, Maul of the Skyclave just makes all of this so much easier. It, it, it really has been the answer to all of the problems I've faced with these white decks in that it's also a good defensive card, which is not how you think of it. Obviously, you take to the air, but first strike's a really big deal as well. You're able to contain all these big creatures from the opposing decks. So I can't say enough good things about Maul of the Skyclave. It's definitely one of my surprise MVPs thus far. Well, five five is kind of like the magic number, and uh, you have a bunch of three ones, and then that's going to stop like Lovestruck Beast and the Mammoth usually yep. from attacking you and stuff. So I could see how that's 
pretty relevant on D. It has mattered. Flying has mattered a bunch. Shut down rankles or riddle forms. I was getting beat down by riddle forms <laughs> the other day, and then I just drew a mall the skyclave, and they're like, "Well, pack it in. Yeah. Can't do anything about that." And I, I think that mostly encapsulates the you know tier one, tier two stuff. Obviously, there are going to be some amount of outliers, and uh, looks like I, I have seven on my list now. I added a couple when we were talking as I was thinking about things, but the mutate decks I think are good enough. And they don't necessarily play any of these cards because they're just a pile of creatures, uh, which does mean that maybe they should have the Great Henge in their deck. But it's also weird because Mutate doesn't trigger Henge. Yeah, but- you know, I, I thought about this more. We talked about this pre-show. Now I'm just 100% in on the idea that they're supposed to be playing Great Henge because it gives you an out in the situations where you have nothing else going on. And that's what this deck really needs more than anything else. Like it needs some kind of rebuild mechanism when it doesn't have Sterics. And if you have Sterics, who cares that you have Great Henge? You'll appreciate the two more mana. And it, it really won't matter that you're not getting to uh, draw additional cards off of it. You get to choose. You get to figure out what you need for the situation. And I, I think the deck needs both in order to be consistent. Right. I, I think it's convenient that Innkeeper and Great Henge are both trying to get you to do the same thing, which is like cast these adventure creatures. And with Mutate, it's different, certainly, because a lot of your cards are just like, you know, build this one big thing and Henge just wants you to like cast things and go wide. But I do think that the deck does want both engines and they have a bunch of like undercosted stuff and like migratory Greathorn that ramps you to make the Henge easier to cast. Yeah. So I, I do think that it's kind of trivial to get the hinge into play with this deck. And at that point, it's like, just go go wider, you know? Like, th- then it just means that all of your eggs aren't in the same basket. Yeah, if, if your deck is 32 creatures and four great hinges, or three great hinges, however you want to split it up, you'll be fine. Like, you, you'll figure out something to do with great hinge where you'll get paid on it. Yeah. Uh, other one, I, I have less... Uh, hope for is some sort of is it spells deck you're talking about like riddle form stormwing entity there's sprite dragon that's a thing that people could be doing i don't think it really stands up to piles of removal which is kind of where the format is right now and then there was another build that we were working on that i'm a little bit more interested in trying which was you know like magmatic channeler wizard sort of and taking mm. advantage of Raza and the mythic spell DFCs. And I mean, you get you get Optin Shock to go with Stormcaller, which is kind of cool. And then yeah. uh, Blitz of the Thunder Raptor, I think, is a very good card. I mean, that's basically Heartless Act in a deck like this. So I, th- I think that that could have some legs maybe, but... I opened that deck yesterday. I went through Scry- Scryfall and was looking at my old decks prior to okay. uh, the reality setting in of Omnath in the format. And I was I was looking over that list, and it still strikes me as a little underpowered, honestly. But I will try it at some point. We were pretty high on like using Sublime Epiphany to get payoffs for Raza too, so I I want to try it. I don't have very high expectations though. Ooh, I I just thought of a, another deck to add that may or may not. Yeah, I guess this deck would have Shark Typhoon, but like some sort of Joel Rail setup has got to be solid. Yeah, where did I just see an interesting Jorail setup? It might have been in combination with like uh, an adventures build, like an innkeeper build, which is not something I've really seen a lot of because. No, I, I sent you that list when the course that came out, right? Like village rights, Joel rail adventures. Yes. Yes, that's right. Maybe that's the one I'm thinking of. So I've, I've tried that. I, th- I, I mean, scavenging use is just so good, especially mm-hmm. with Croxa being a, a pretty big part of the metagame that 
I don't think there's a whole lot of reason for you to play Joel Rail instead of Ooze. Like, obviously, you could mix them three and three or whatever, but I think just Ooze and the three mana, five power things and Great Henge is just much better than messing with Joel Rail. Yeah, where did all these M21 cards go? They're just gone. They're, they're, they haven't been unbanned yet. Where's Teferi? Where's Where's Ugin? Just gone. Corey Bowmeister had one Teferi in his Azorius list. I was like, oh yeah, that's a card. He, had, he also had Solemn Simulacrum. Haven't seen any of these cards in a very long time, and uh, I don't I don't know if they're going to make it back. I think they still have to Dude, wait out Throne of Eldrain before I'm, they're going to get back in the mix. Well, that's the problem, right? Is like they they go at the same time. Right, right. So they'll never have their moment. I'm going to put Solemn in my food deck, and you can't stop me. That is that is a nice card to throw in the oven. Let me tell you. Do you remember my colorless monument deck? That uh, was like that, that could also be fine. I'm I think sure. so. I mean, like it's the best Ugin deck. Maybe it's the best way to ramp to Ugin, which yeah, nobody I mean, else we, really does all that well. Yeah, we don't we don't have a good Ugin deck, and a lot of these control decks are set up with enchantments, so they can't really play Ugin. Yeah, the the problem is that if you're investing a lot of resources into making a monument when the format is very contemplative of artifacts because of things like the Great Henge, you don't get any payoff from just putting that monument in play and having it blown up. So Yeah, but you you also have a lot of targets, right? Like your deck is mono brown, so it is, but none of your cards are good. So they can is, just ignore it, all of them and it is true. do do their business. It probably feels pretty good to like wilt a palladium mirror or whatever. So Yeah. Anyway, uh cycling is another one that I've heard people talk about that plays mostly unplayable cards. So not a lot of these pillars gonna be showing up. And I I think that deck might be solid, but Definitely not like one of the better things you could be doing. Yeah, I don't know what to make of cycling right now. I haven't played with her against it. You know, we know it exists. It had its moment in the sun a few months ago. Nothing has really changed as far as that goes. Uh, it's just hard for me to see why it lines up particularly well. And does it do like, does it do anything better than anything else is the question I have. And graveyards are being accounted for. We mentioned more soul guide lanterns. I think if that's the case and there's more oozes around, you don't want infinitely large oozes facing you down. That's certainly not a good scenario to be in. So, Well, ooze takes a long time. If you're talking about like shutting off Zenith Flare, I mean, obviously it's going to shut off Luras just fine. It does, but it's but. it's also just huge and has gained a bunch of life if it stays in play, yeah. right? If you just yeah. sink all your mana into scavenging news they don't really have a lot of good answers to that so. yeah if you're able to kill the fox and you know manage the graveyard and gain some life then it's it's tough for them to win they're going to need to like do a lot of cycling and probably back-to-back zenith flare you which might right. be tough uh next up Satessin champion uh i i pegged this as a card to watch because when theros was coming out it was like oh you know this is like a cool engine and we had some fun like building around these enchantment decks and I don't think they've gotten a lot of help since then outside of just like all the other busted engines getting banned. Yeah, the, the biggest enchantment that has made the mix is Felidar Retreat. I've enjoyed doing Satessin Champion, Champion Felidar Retreat stuff. Like that's, I said, that's I, legit. Yeah, I, I have good Urian setups, but I am curious if you can just go harder on like enchantments and find some mid-range space to occupy, maybe using Archon of Sun's Grace, Satessin Champion, and a bunch of enchantments there. Uh, I would have to look at the list of cards a little bit more carefully and think about the two drop creatures. I don't remember them being great, and I don't think I want to do like any kind of Heliod or Daxos type stuff, but it, it's worth another look for sure. Yeah. Uh, Mono Blue Lotus is another one that actually 5-0'd a daily event on Magic Online during the Omnath era, which 
I mean, it's, it was probably better for it that it was playing against like Omnath and decks with no removal spells. Right. Another so, deck that could suffer from artifacts being something to account for. for yep, sure. exactly. I mean, you, you have some amount of like grinding capability with Arcanist Owl and now you can glass pool mimic your Arcanist Owl and stuff like that. So yep. maybe a fringe choice, not something I would expect to see a lot of, but I'm almost certainly going to play this at some point just because it looks fun. Nice. And then the two I added when we were talking was like, oh yeah, we were talking about like your Gruel combo deck. And then uh, Teamer Ultimatum was another one that doesn't really fit in any of these boxes and still makes a decent amount of sense. And I was like sketching out a list earlier today. Just Terror of the Peaks type stuff? or Yeah. 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 And you're yeah. not, you're not like a, you know, engine ramp deck. Now you're just like tap out big things. And this, this is a place where you can actually slot in a couple of Ugins and have it be fine. I don't know why I am so addicted to the idea of Urian plus Omen of the Hunt right now, but for whatever reason, that is an interaction that appeals to me. And the whole like Urian Terror of the Peaks thing has always worked for me. Like I just like that one turn setup where you're just blinking everything and killing them on the spot. Okay. Yeah. The uh, thing about Urian I forgot to mention too is like it's, I mean, you're obviously like a slow deck, but having 80 cards, getting to start 80 cards has got to be nice against the rogue decks that are just trying to mill you. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. But I didn't know how much it was necessarily in your favor because of how slow to set up you are and just, you know, how ruthless they are. Like their their mana curve is so low and they try and get you dead pretty quickly. They have a bunch of like cheap card drawing and cheap interaction, a lot of counter spells. Like I could just imagine them, you know, needing to take a couple extra turns to kill you, but it's still being trivial. Yeah, I haven't played the matchup much with my particular Urian deck, but I I did say just in terms of, you know, I'm casting a lot of five mana expensive spells and all their stuff is very cheap. I was concerned about the matchups. I certainly packed my chain web arachnirs, which I think all green players must do at this point. Make sure you don't leave home without your spiders. And I that card has just been such a house. Like it it doesn't answer the problem in and of itself, but its impact is huge on the matchup. Right, because, I mean, the the flip side of it, outside of, like, their mill clock, they're still interacting with you and grinding out your resources, and then you just have this thing to play back at them basically for free. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think that that's huge. So even even if you're, you know, making them sack their Merfolk Wind Robber or whatever, and I mean, you now have this thing that, like, pressures the board. Maybe you get to keep trading it with uh, Thieves' Guild Enforcer or stuff like that. Like, you slow down their actual damage pressure, which is nice. Yeah, especially in my deck, which has like all the mana in the world, right? Wolf Willow Haven and Omen of the Hunt means that you're just always playing ahead of curve anyway. And yeah. that, that's the limiting factor. Like five is expensive for Arachnir, but it, once you have a ton of lands in play, you're happy to cast that spell every turn. So Right. And then uh, Gruul Combo to me seems kind of DOA without escape. I, I've seen some people trying it, but like you kind of need the Cobra and it's pretty fragile now that a lot of people just have removal, but like maybe there's something that maybe there's some way you can rework it. It's so funny because I didn't have escape in the first build I ever. Wrote I know, about. I know, but you weren't playing against a ton of removal then either. Oh, well, I wasn't playing the deck. It, it, I wrote that article before the set had even been released. Right, it was entirely theoretical and did so basically saying I don't know if this deck is actually good. We'll find out when it gets released, and turns out it wasn't. But it, it's funny to think that now with the escape from the wilds being gone it just feels like kind of unplayable i have gone back to it though and the thing i've done 
is tried to find a secondary engine. We talk a lot about having multiple paths to victory. And now I'm just playing like some Felidar retreats and I'm Naya. And that's been good. You can just make a big battlefield out of nowhere and pump your whole team and again, kind of win a single turn. You just cast like Lithoforming for three and that's enough in a lot of spots. It, It just does it for you. So I have some kinks to work out with that list. I didn't, it doesn't feel ironed out enough that I was comfortable sharing with it, but it's doing the same thing. It, it's got the uh, Dryad into Rada into Balaged to return your Nahiri's Lithoforming from the graveyard and just draw your whole deck if you need to. You don't really need to when you have Felidar Retreat, though. You just make a huge battlefield and you'll be fine. Yeah, that's kind of what we were doing with like the Song of Creation crab decks, too. Yep. And uh, Lithoforming is also like a combo with crab, so... I mean, you, you've cast Lithoforming now. You understand why I'm hooked on this card because sometimes you just do it and you're like, this is busted. Like, this is just absurd. How am I getting this much value from this card? And then other times you're like, oh, this is an absolute blank in my hand and it does nothing. Well, that's the thing is I've at this point, I've played multiple games with decks that contain that card on ladder and I have yet to cast it. You're missing out. I, I advise I, you I not it. to do it. You'll never be able to go back once you cast it once. Well, I keep I keep trying. You know, it's it's not like oh I've never cast it, therefore it's bad or whatever. It's just I don't know. It, just, it just hasn't come up somehow. It's weird. I'm I'm disappointed, dude. I'm sad. Yeah, yeah. It it's something. It's something else. But like, I've I've done other stuff too in that general space. Uh, I've worked with like green white, Felidar retreat decks that again like ancient green warden being part of the plan. That card seems okay to me especially in conjunction with like being a Felidar retreat deck where you just get to on your ancient green warden turn, you just go grab your fabled passage and you, you know, make four two twos and then win the next turn. If you ever untap, there's a lot of very clean setups when you add Felidar retreat where you don't just have to draw your entire deck to win. And it's nice to have these little easy setups uh, to go along with some of these bigger combo plans. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I mean, retreat is is definitely a powerful card in a world that is more fair. And if you ever have the setup to actually do it multiple times, then it does feel like you were doing something unfair. Right. So I'm interested in that for sure. If if we can make some sort of like scrappier but combo-y Felidar retreat deck work, I think that would be pretty solid. I felt close, but... I- like I said, I didn't want to share it because it still definitely had some noticeable kinks. Hopefully, I'll get it to a point this week where I can share it. Dude, who cares? Well, I people, don't know. Some, people, sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. Like it depends how steeled I am for interaction. Because if you do something with obvious flaws, someone's going to show up and be more than happy to point out those obvious flaws to you. Which fine. I mean, if a deck has flaws, I'm I'm happy to hear about them. Every uh, deck has flaws. Like yeah, it, it, there's there's not a single like piece of work that I've submitted and not gone back and been like, Oh, you know, this should have been different or I should have had this card in my deck or whatever. Right. right? Obviously there's, there's a spectrum and you don't want to submit things that are on the super far low end of that because you've been conditioned against it. But I think that there is value to just like sharing a thing like you did with your gruel deck. And then, I mean, even Sam black was like, your deck sucks. And he just, he didn't understand what the deck did. But it, it was still helpful. It still got a lot of traction. It got people thinking about the format. It may have set the groundwork for how people were approaching like building with Omnath, for example, right? Like that's valuable. And people right now are playing Felidar Retreat where they have like the Marasa two drop 
or like fabled passage as the most busted thing they can do with it. And it is useful to get those ideas out there. No, I, I agree. I mean, I, I look at deck creation like sketching, like maybe this sounds a little full of myself. I, I don't, really don't intend it that way, but like if an artist is putting together a painting, I think it's interesting to see their foundational work and how they visualize things and how they progressed and they did this sketch and then they did this half color and then they made the final finished product. When I'm sharing decks, I look at all of them as sketches. Like these are ideas that are gestating and I'm using as tools to understand. Like I've shared a bunch of decks over the past few days and some I'm high on, some I'm not particularly high on, but all of them have informed this discussion that you and I have had today. And honestly, I feel like I understand this format really well. And I, if I had a tournament to play, I would have a very good idea what I should be targeting, what I should be registering, and I would like my chances. That doesn't mean every deck I've shared in this moment has been ready for a tournament, but all of them were part of getting to this place where I feel like I have a grasp on the format. Deck building is creative, and therefore I think that it is an art form. And I don't know, similarly to any sort of art form, like you can critique basically any aspect of it and it's neither like right or wrong. Yeah. Sure. But I, I don't know. I guess it's, it's, it's similar to like, Oh, is, is magic a sport? Is chess a sport? Like these, these mind sports or whatever. It's like, it depends on how you define it, but in my mind, yes. And I think people are going to say, you know, deck building is not an art. You know, you just copy paste from the internet or whatever. And it's like, you're, you're sort of missing the point. You know, we are, engineering all of these moving pieces and trying to figure out how things work and how to be the most efficient and solve problems. It's like that, that stuff is not easy, right? No. Like you can half-ass it. Sure. But like, you're not going to get optimized. And that's, that's kind of what we're striving for a lot of the time. And yeah, like there, there is value to like you showing your sketches and just being like, Hey, not a finished product. Don't play this on ladder. You're not going to hit number one or whatever, but like this idea is worth exploring and I want like a second set of eyes or whatever. And I, th I think that that's helpful. And I think that, you know, people enjoy it when artists share their sketches or cosplay works in progress or how to videos and stuff like that. And this is kind of more of the same. And for people who don't think that it's an art form, it's like, why do you think people get so upset about like, net decking and things like that. Or like when you say someone's deck sucks, they take it personally because to them it is, it is their creation. It is a part of them. They care about it. That's art. Right. No, I think that's a great reason to define it as such. Uh, question time. It is question time. Of course, every week we go to our friends over in our discord and ask them for their burning questions about magic, the universe, life, all that good stuff. And this week's question comes from, Schwa? Do you think I'm saying that right? Schwa. S-H-W-A. Schwa. Yeah. Schwa asks, specifically me, so you don't get to weigh in on this one, sorry. Yeah, I'm, I'm just going to go. For Brian, have you considered making one or two more episodes of Head Games to discuss some strategies for dealing with current events? Seems like we need it more than ever. Uh, for folks who may be newer to our podcast, of which I'm sure there are many, uh, in the arena decklist era. I did previously do a second podcast under our umbrella called Head Games with my friend Jonathan Carter. Jonathan's uh, gas. I, Jonathan is awesome. I'm not going to give his qualifications because I mess them up every time. He's a very qualified person. I will tell you that. He knows a lot about competing 
and training people. I, I confuse. And, and he- head games related things. Yeah, I, I confuse the exact nature of his qualifications. And I know he's a very uh, forthright and honest person, unlike some other people in the space, and likes to be very clear about it. So just go Google Jonathan Carter. You'll find him. He's worked with many esports organizations. And we did a podcast together for about uh, probably like 20 episodes where I, we I thought talked. you got, got into like the 30s, but... I don't think so. I, I feel like it was right around 20. But we talked a lot about his work and how he helps the athletes, both real and esport athletes that he works with. Those are real uh, athletes. It's a sport. We just talked about this. Both traditional and esport athletes. Sorry about that. Look, magic, uh, magic has E and then sport in it now, right? Both parts count equally. Anyway, anyway, Jonathan would share plenty of info with myself and the audience, and we do our best to prepare people to compete, give them useful tips for training. It's worth going to check out. One of the things that we very much had as a goal when we were doing the cast was to make it timeless. So if you haven't listened, you can definitely go back now, and I think you'll get something from it. I'm really proud of it. I'm really proud of Jonathan's work on it. I think we did a pretty good job, and a lot of people really miss it. I get asked about it a lot. There's two reasons why I don't think we'll do it again. The first is that we probably overestimated how much content there was to do. You know, we went very hard weekly at first and pace kind of slowed down as we got into more things and realized we had hit on the topics we were really itching to talk about. And certainly we could have produced more things to talk about, but it felt like we got the important stuff out of the way. And I'd rather just stop while we were still making a really high quality product, uh, which I think we were even at the end. So that was the one big strike against doing more of it. But the second one, and I think the more important one, I don't feel like I'm in any position to give people advice on how to deal with the current situation. I live my life on the verge of crumbling most days. And like, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You don't have to be okay right now. I'm not okay right now. Me either. And I know that it's, I know that no one asked for my opinion, but me either. Right. Nobody wants to hear from you. Be quiet and be unokay uh, in your space. No, we'll, we'll get words from you in a minute. But I just can't present myself as like a voice of authority. And I wasn't on the show. Like I was the one asking questions. But I also think it's unfair to ask Jonathan to do that because I know right. Jonathan's having a hard time. We all are. This is a really difficult situation. And I wish I could give more to people. I I wish I could sit and honestly just talk to people all day and listen to how they were feeling and do everything I can to help them. But it's a battle just to hold my own stuff together. And it has not been easy. And some days it feels almost impossible. So taking on something like that, it's just not in the cards right now. And even like in the magic space, I feel that way sometimes. It's hard to present myself and want to stream. And some weeks it's hard to write articles. And this is the easiest thing I have to do every week because I get to come talk with you and I always enjoy that. But even doing this sometimes, it's just like, there's a lot of other stuff going on. It's hard to get focused on this set of issues. See, we've had our weeks and we even, you know, know, kind of took a week off during all of this. Right. Right. Yeah. And I, I think you just have to be honest about the circumstances. And for me, part of that honesty is just saying, I'm not equipped to do that right now. Yeah. I mean, that's the exact same spot I'm in. Like I, I, <laughs> I wish that we could, you know, maybe even if I'm, if I'm not a part of it or whatever, but like, I wish that you and Jonathan could go on and 
maybe not even say like, oh, we have all the answers or whatever, but like, this is how we've been dealing with this and it's, it's been working or whatever, but I don't think anyone is able to do that, unfortunately. Yeah. We'd all be signing up if there was answers available. Uh, it's just a really hard time, you know, in our personal lives, in our political lives, in our health lives for many people. And piecing that all together is just not going to be solved in one podcast. Uh, not that I think that's what you're asking for, Schwa. I, I know you're coming from a place of just like missing us probably, and you just want to hear from us again. And I I hope someday we can find something where we come back together and we do another episode of Head Games for Everyone because I get asked about it all the time. It doesn't feel like this is the moment, though. Yeah, one of the things that has stuck with me that uh, a friend of ours told me is that he's just like not even really engaging in magic but still listens to the cast on the regular just to maintain like a sense of normalcy. And... I think that the podcast would be helpful even for just a thing like that, or even to, you know, this is kind of why I want to answer this question is just like to, to hear that, like, yeah, you're, you're struggling and we, we get it. We just baseline assume that like everyone is struggling at least, you know, maybe not in the same way, but in their own way. And for them to maybe hear that from us would also be helpful. And Obviously, yeah, I, I don't think that Schwab's looking for like all the answers or whatever. It's like, hey, can you can you fix this for me? It's like, <laughs> Godspeed, you know. But uh, even if it was just like, you know, I solved like this small aspect, or I was able to do this to make this small aspect better, or whatever. It's like that sort of thing is probably very helpful for people because I think that yeah, you know, we we just all feel like we're crumbling at this point. So, all right, well. Why don't we why don't we take a shot at that? Do you I mean do you have one thing in your routine that like no. has brought you some solace has has <laughs> no. done anything for you? Uh I mean there there are a, a lot of small things but it's also it's weird it depends on my mental state, right? Because it's like I I've been hardcore quarantining. I'm not like super at risk or anything. And it's not like I I live with parents or anything like that. Like I could I could probably get sick. And I, I would likely come out at the end, most likely. Mm-hmm. Cats but can get coronavirus. So. Word. That, that's fair. But I still think that it is important to do my part to limit the spread. And so I've mostly just been like on my own. And I mean, there's also the consideration of like, who, who could I like go see or whatever, where I would also not be potentially putting them at risk or their family at risk and so on and so forth. So it's just like, the only way in my mind I see to handle this situation is to be quarantined for the most part. So it's, it's been really hard just in general. And it it was like, okay at first and now it's, it's getting worse. Uh, But I think it's also gotten a little bit better. Like I'm definitely not at rock bottom or anything, but yeah, I mean, having, having the cats help, they give me a reason to get up and get off the couch. Like I have to feed them and play with them and I enjoy having them around and I get to talk at things, even if they can't talk back at me or whatever, you know? So like that has been good. And then there's things like talking to some friends of mine on like weekly video chats or whatever, where it kind of helps, but it's also kind of like this sucks because it's not the real thing, you know, just like right. being being in person face to face with people, et cetera. It's just different. I don't, I don't really connect like that. So I don't know. It's depending on, on when you ask me, it's like, Oh, video chatting is awesome. Or I'm just like video chatting sucks. You know? Right. 
Yeah, I think we all have those oscillations between like this solution I found is the best thing and I'm so sick of this solution. I just want to do the normal thing again. Yeah. Um, f- for me, I can think of kind of like two points that I can point to as positives uh, off the top of my head. The first is that I've gotten to spend a ton of time with my wife and we really like each other. Like we just enjoy <laughs> being around glad. each other. I am yeah, really glad. I, it always baffles me when like people have bad things to say about their significant other. It's like, what's wrong with you? Why, why, why are you doing this to yourself and that person? Like be with someone you care about and you are happy to be around all the time. Um, so obviously for most of our lives, we've had obligations that take a, us away from each other for sometimes a majority of the day, uh, be it work or travel or whatever. There's always something in the way. Right. And, this year has probably been the most time we've ever gotten to spend together. And uh, we just both really appreciate it. And it, it'll be hard to give that back. I don't, I don't know that we can give that back. I mean, we're just so used to always being there for each other. And I think like humans should be able to live their lives that way if they want to. Like it's important to have those close relationships and not always be pulled away from the person you want to spend all your time with. Uh, so probably for the first time we've gotten to experience that and it's been great. Uh, I like cooking our meals together every day and I get to check in with her while she's working and feel very connected to her work life. Whereas that used to be a very separate part of her where she just like went somewhere, did her work and came back. Now it's much more something that uh, I'm in tune with. So that's cool. Uh, I also like how easy it is to just like hang out with friends online and play video games. Again, it's one of those things where like, oh, it would be nice to go in person and play some video games with friends or go to a magic tournament. Sure. Both those things would be great, but it's, it's been cool how willing people are to just like get together in gaming groups. And, you know, we've played a bunch of fall guys, other random games I play with people, be it team fight tactics, or I was playing a bunch of call of duty with my family members, uh, going back a few months. There's just a bunch of stuff that like I haven't done in years that I didn't even consider doing for a very long time which has re-entered my life and I've really appreciated. So both those things have helped me get through stuff. Despite that, I have a lot of bad days, you know, some really bad, some only kind of bad, and then there's occasional good ones. But I think that's all we can ask at this point is just try and find little bright points and hope we get to the other side of this someday. Yeah, I try. It's it's just hard, man. I mean, there, there's, there are some days where... It is, it's clear to me that like, oh, this, this was a good thing. This is a thing that I can focus on to make me happy or whatever. And then there are other days where like, you know, the, the same level of events could occur and I'm just like, eh, who cares? You know? Yep. So yep. I, I don't have the answers. I wish I did. I, I'm sure that like Jonathan himself has the answers. Yes. He has well, all the answers. Everyone at Jonathan on Twitter <laughs> and demand these answers that he's hoarding and keeping from the rest of us. No, no. I was going to say that I'm sure that uh, he doesn't have the answers, but could likely give people some advice as, you know, for how to like approach things either like mentally or like give you some things that you could do physically to help get your mind off things or to help work through this stuff, you know, but like, it's, it's not going to solve it. It's not going to be the same for everyone. I'm sure that, you know, right. he probably hasn't solved it himself. Uh, and if he has, like, you know, how dare he hold back on us? That's kind of messed up. But, yeah, I don't know. It's hard. I, th- I think that talking about it and making sure that, you know, everyone 
knows that we're all kind of on the same page here does help, right? It's like, yes, I'm not just in it myself. You know, I know that there are plenty of other people that are, you know, in the, maybe in the same situation as me or would like to even be in the same situation as me, but are like an essential worker or whatever, or like are in a restaurant that is probably wrongfully opening or, you know, things along those lines. And it's like, that, that sucks even harder, you know, and I, I can't imagine being in that situation. No, I feel that. I mean, a, a lot of things about how this has broken for me personally are good. And I, I try not to lose sight of that. It's hard. I don't fault anyone for feeling bad sometimes, despite all the good things you have. And I, I have a lot of good things. I know that if I can stop myself, I can get back to a place where I recognize that. But in the moment, it's just like, I just want to see my friends again, or I just want to go see my family who I haven't seen in you know, approaching a year now. It's such a long period of time and uh, nothing wrong with it wearing on you because it is wearing on all of us. Game. Good luck.